Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Episode 16. Hello, hello, hello. We are back. Christmas is behind us. Arsenal is in the top four again. New fitness regimens are being planned by each one of us to start 2022 before we get to mid-January when we kick him to the wayside. Life is good. Philippe is here. It's his first Christmas in America he just experienced as a married man. How'd you do? Did you mess anything up, Philippe? No, I think it was fine, man. Shelby liked her gift? I, she did. She actually really didn't arrive on time. It hasn't arrived yet, but I showed her a picture. <laughs> she liked it. How do you know she liked it if she hasn't even arrived? She said she liked it. So. <laughs> hey, year one, there's still those pleasantries where you know, you're still in that honeymoon phase where they tell you they like things, even if they maybe they didn't. I'm, I don't know, 20 <laughs> Christmases deep with Micah, and I think I did okay this time, but usually I don't, and I find out later. Yeah, I mean... I'm just going to play year by year, I guess. <laughs> Andy is also here, having, having finished perhaps his last Christmas as Father Time is chasing him down. Andy, how was Christmas? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Rude. How are you going to feel if that turns out to be true? <laughs> <laughs> what, when I wrote those words, I thought about it, and I thought, well, I'll just giggle, kind of like Andy does right now. <laughs> we'll play this at the funeral. <laughs> Was it a good? Was it a good Christmas? Up until now, yeah. yeah great, great. <laughs> and a guest. That's right. You've heard her voice already. Uh, we didn't tell her to be quiet until we introduced her because that we want to hear point. everything she has to say, which is why we brought her on this pod. This is two episodes in a row with a guest, so maybe we've hit our stride. I'll apologize in advance, though, to those listening. I've done very little prep and outlining for this episode because today we have two Barneys on the show and I know from many years of experience that if there's two Barneys in life that there's only one truth in life and that is that when you get them together you can throw out all plans we're going hell for leather this way and that way but today we have Andy's eldest daughter Brittany Beard formerly Brittany Barney who has the most deadly drag Maradona that has ever existed (laughs) Brittany how are you I'm good how are you Thank Good you for that t- introduction. Yeah, you're welcome. You didn't write it like Bo did last time. Um, so if it seemed a little choppy, it's because I'm not nearly as good of a writer as Bo is. Can I jump in here? Because uh, of course, not only has she got the most deadly drag Maradona that, uh, that that probably the world has ever seen, maybe it's been surpassed by my youngest daughter, Holly, but mm. Brittany actually came up with the move. Of course, there was the Maradona. Uh, but one day in, in a game or practice, I can't remember which at this point in time, uh, but I can't remember what I have for breakfast this morning. I'm getting <laughs> sold. Um, but, it, the, you know, she just pulled out this shield, drag it right in front of the opponent, get them to bite and commit, and all of a sudden went into the Maradona. And it, it was many times more effective than a regular Maradona because it actually involved, you know, baiting the opponent and getting them to commit, which meant that the outcome was just awesome. You know, and she left so many players completely dead behind her with that move over the years. That was probably about seven or eight years ago. She left me for dead on the practice field. We had a meeting with all the uh, franchise owners in, and Brittany, you were wearing those 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 goofy, and yes, I'll say it, goofy shoes Vibram with shoes. the toes. Yeah. Every every toe has its own space. Then, yeah. yeah, And you were on the field in those toe shoes and just <laughs> burned me, ripped me with this drag Maradona, of which Andy told me was coming. I've never seen it before. <laughs> 
you know, that was born out of necessity though, because I was never the fastest ever. And I would always get caught wanting to do the Maradona, but not because at the time the Maradona was done at speed, full speed, full speed, running at a player every time. And I was fast, but not that fast. And so I would, I would always get caught wanting to do the Maradona, but not running full speed because I get stuck somewhere. Sure. So sure. that was my solution was to slow it down, suck them in yeah. by pushing it out and then do it. Well, let's dig in and actually hear you describe the drag Maradona as the inventor of the move. For those listening, if you go back and listen to episode one, maybe was the Maestro series episode. We talk specifically about how we use the Maestro series to teach skill in a slow way. But the first move in the Maestro is the drag Maradona. You may not know this, but there's a whole YouTube series around this. There's quite a few kids here in, in Kansas City and other places that now can do a drag Maradona because you invented it. But describe it? Like, what did it feel like? What kind of setup would you get into a defender to set them up to just kill them with this move? So the great thing about that move, I feel like, is that you can do it from anywhere and you really lean into them and you can be stuck like in a position where it would seem impossible to get out of. And that move would come in handy because you would lean into them and push the ball towards them. Like, here's the ball. I'm giving you the ball. Like it was a gift. And I think it was an innate thing in people to want to grab it when it's right in front of them, inches from their feet. It's a gift and they go to grab it and you pull it back and, and you're gone. Yeah. And, and you're leaning, you're leaning into them. And so it's got this, it makes people look like they literally were killed <laughs> yeah. because you're leaning into them and you can feel them move. Yeah. And when they move and their momentum takes them the complete wrong direction to fall. where you're going, they fall down. Yeah. It's I mean, it best. really makes them it's look the like they die. And because it's such an innate innate thing to want to move towards the ball, like parents, you would do it time and time again to the same players and parents from the sidelines on the teams time and time again would scream from the other team. She's going to do it. She's going to do it. Don't bite. Don't bite. Because they'd see it. It's like 10th time I've done it to this kid. Yeah. yeah. And they just could not not bite. Yeah. I I quote, she's going to do that spinny thing. That spinny (laughs) thing. Yeah. They didn't know what it was called. (laughs) Why didn't we name it the spinny thing? thing. (laughs) Don't bite. Well, you know, this is a really good segue into this, this discussion and, and where we're going to go. And, and I want to I kick this, the meat of what we're going to talk about off with talking about our club's philosophy and mission as an organization. I don't know that we've really covered this on a podcast before, but we as a club really see our mission t- is to use soccer as a vehicle for teaching life lessons, which is a really fancy way of saying what I think coaches, most coaches would say, whether they put it in practice in the most efficient use um, is, is up for debate. Um, but they would say that, that, that we as coaches, our primary responsibility is to use the sport to help kids become um, better you know, life lessons, better people, right? And so specifically, we talk oftentimes about brave, creative leaders. We want our kids to be brave, willing to take on challenges that are bigger than them, willing to go for it, not, not, not being afraid of failure. We want our kids to be creative, right? When presented with a problem on the field, they can see numerous solutions and picking the one that maybe is is best for them and least likely the defense is going to stop it. And if, if a player is both brave and creative, they naturally become a leader. And and if you're a leader on the field, you're also a leader off the field mm-hmm. with this willingness to get out of the box and go for it and no fear of failure. And that's really at its core 
what 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 we want our kids to become as legends in the club and 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 that's more important than becoming good soccer players and but the good soccer player piece is 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 a natural part of the process of becoming that brave creative leader yeah. for life and Brittany you are there's I mean there's a lot of really brave creative leaders that have come from the club I like to think that I'm one of them mm-hmm. uh, uh, hold you, on a minute I gotta stop you because oh no. <laughs> that we might as well end the podcast right there after that introduction because it was so good <laughs> That you know that it none was. of us can top it that was. now. You know, you know you've, you've you just shattered my ability to you know, add anything to that. Isn't that <laughs> what you want, though? Your protege to be able to like no, in <laughs> 19, no. to be better than you. My, my ego has been destroyed. In, not he's going to tell he's going to die in, in this. Christmas. Yeah, right. You're yeah, gonna yeah, die yeah, yeah. yeah, we may not see you here this time next year. So. <laughs> I think he's preparing to take over. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you know there is there is there is definitely nobody that better exemplifies being a brave creative leader than you. And this is going to be a fun episode because we're going to take a very circuitous route and go cover a bunch of really crazy topics to demonstrate one what a a really sound philosophy and curriculum can do for kids post soccer talking to you about what you do now and many of your experiences in the past but we're going to do it from both a soccer and a non-soccer perspective let's kick these things off with perhaps that's not the first time you've gone viral, but it is a time in which you've gone viral. Um, let's talk about the time at a Renaissance festival somebody tried to steal your sword. Is that right? Do <laughs> I have this right? Sword. Your husband's sword. Did, yeah. Does everybody Her husband has a sword. I mean, that's 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 interesting <laughs> in and of itself. Does what everybody is, here understand what wide. going viral means? Because I didn't until just last week. Everybody under the age of 60, <laughs> yes, does, which is most of our yeah. demographics. Well, did you have to go there? <laughs> if you're watching a podcast, you probably know what going viral means. <laughs> <laughs> Never miss a chance. No. <laughs> All right, so your husband has a sword. Tell us what that is and tell us the story of how you got on the news chasing somebody down. Sure, so I should probably f- preface this by saying that my husband owns a jousting troupe. Um, so for a living, if you've been to probably the most recognizable jousting arena would be Medieval Times. Yep. Um, so he started at Medieval Times years and years ago, uh, graduated, I, I guess from you would say graduated from Medieval Times as a knight learned how to joust and then went on to start his own jousting troupe that performs. They hire him as an independent contractor to perform at Renaissance festivals. So for half the year now, we travel all over the country performing at Renaissance festivals, him jousting, me working with unicorns, which I'll explain later. And um, the other half of the year we spend performing in Florida, which was where we're from now. And so he owns a jousting troupe. So we were performing in Denver, which is where we are every summer at the Colorado Renaissance Festival. And it gets a lot of people. There were about, I want to say, probably 4,000 people, maybe a little less, at the joust that day. So it was packed, wall-to-wall people. And they were all watching the joust, and the joust got done, and the knights um, jumped over the fence to the joust field and were signing autographs. They were facing away from the jousting field. And there was big lines of people wanting their autographs, wanting to talk to them. So none of the knights are paying attention to the actual field. And my husband's favorite sword is, had been like stabbed at the end of the show into the middle of the field. It was just there wobbling in the middle of the field and this I at the time wasn't performing because I just had my child my first child and she was a baby so I had wheeled her out in the stroller wait watched, how old is she she's probably two I'd say maybe okay. two right. and I'd wheel her out in the stroller watch the show and was on my way to Brian and his crowd of people 
um, through, I was trying to make my way through the crowd up against the fence. And I also had my goddaughter with me who was four at the time. And uh, I'm <laughs> wheeling the stroller along the joust field fence. And all of a sudden I see this guy run because it's on a hill. People watch the show on a hill. And he's sprinting full speed down the hill through the crowd. And he hurdles the jousting fence, which is probably about like three and a half, four feet tall, right in front of me hurdles the jousting fence and runs into the middle of the field, plucks my husband's sword out of the sand, turns around, runs back right in front of me, hurdles the fence again, and he's off into the crowd, brandishing this sword (laughs) through the crowd. And I was like, shit, (laughs) what do I do now? None of the knights saw it. They're too preoccupied signing autographs. So I put my daughter's stroller in park, and I said to my goddaughter, stay right here, do not move. And I looked at the nearest family that was just fans, patrons, yeah. standing right next to me. And I said, watch my kids. <laughs> they just didn't have a choice. They said yes. And I took off after this guy. And he's drunk, running through the crowd, not incredibly fast. Wielding a sword. Wielding a sword, like laughing. think it's the funniest thing in the world. And he's like, so I'm trying to navigate my way through the crowd to find him. And I catch up with him. And we're going uphill. So it's not easy through a crowd. And I get close to him. And I grab his shirt and it rips in half because he keeps going (laughs) doesn't even look back and I'm like stop stop I keep running his sword's worth like about 600 700 dollars it's an expensive sword and I don't want to lose it it's our income so I keep running after him and we get a little bit farther up the hill he's almost to the top and through the crowd and I think I try to grab onto him I'm not getting a good hold and he doesn't have a shirt on anymore so there's nothing to grab onto so I do what I know best and I kick him like in the legs and this makes him stumble enough that he stumbles forward uphill and I jump on his back and get my hands around his neck and he falls and falls onto his back like turns as he's falling uphill yeah thank god (laughs) it'd be a different story and he falls onto me (laughs) <laughs> so he's on, he's on top of me on his back I'm on my back and I have my arm around his neck at this point so I have him in like a headlock essentially mm-hmm. and he's on top of me and what's funny about the story is that these fans patrons are kind of watching it happen and everyone thinks it's part of the show yeah. they don't know any different so all of a sudden a crowd is formed around us and they're just because I'm dressed I was dressed like a gypsy so mm-hmm. I look like I work at the festival um, and I have him with my arms around his neck and I'm going, someone get security, security, someone get security. (laughs) And they're just looking at me. Everyone's just staring. I think it's this mentality when like you're yelling someone or anyone get security. So finally, after about five minutes of that, I pointed to one random patron and I said, you go get security. And that worked. (laughs) And he ran off through the crowd and and I'm still holding this guy. And he had a buddy with him who was like running next to him as he had the sword. And his buddy was like, he, this guy's laughing like he's a drunk like 20 something year old he yeah, thinks yeah. it's hysterical that he has a sword and his buddy's like yeah enjoy it she's pretty you just suck soak it oh, in dear. i know it was weird <laughs> and uh so this crowd is forming and i guess <laughs> these people are taking pictures what's really funny about this is like as this happens there's a big crowd around me but the crowd down where the knights were signing autographs dissipates because they've signed all the autographs so it's just the knights like getting the last few stragglers and my husband looks over and about 10 yards from him is my daughter in the stroller and my goddaughter by th- with a random family yeah. just standing there staring and my husband walks up and he goes hi that's my kid who are you <laughs> <laughs> and they go some lady said watch my kids and ran off after this guy with a sword and brian goes and, and they go he's she's up there see that crowd she's up there at the top of the hill and brian goes okay so he takes the bait 
Belle out of the yeah. stroller, picks her up, two-year-old Belle, takes my goddaughter by the hand and says, come with me, <laughs> walks up the hill, spreads the crowd, and he gets into, he finds me in a headlock with this guy in the sword. And he looks at me, looks at the guy, looks at me, and he goes, babe, I got this. <laughs> and by that point, security shows up like 30 seconds later. So this guy, so I like get out of the headlock and Brian puts his, <laughs> puts his hand on the guy's chest and goes, don't you ever do that again. Like that guy's going to come back and do yeah, it next yeah, week. Yeah. And <laughs> the, the, the guy was just, a, like I said, a drunk 20 something year old. And he's going, yeah, I really, really loved your show, man. Great show. Great, Great show. show. Great, Great job out there. And, and Brian, the only thing you could think of was saying was, yeah, well, do you like thievery? He's <laughs> like, that was the stupidest thing I ever could have said. And the, yeah, they, the security shows up and they drag the guy off. And Well, the image, the image that I can see that went viral-ish, I think it did. Yeah. It was everywhere, right? Like you were on the news. Yeah, this so the image of, you know, this, this, this gypsy <laughs> leaves her kid, chases oh, no, down this guy. I wasn't called a gypsy. I was not called a gypsy. So what's the crazy part about the story is there was a guy who um, would take photographs, like just a guy who had a nice camera. He would take photographs of different places in hopes and then sell them to news stations for money. And like if they were good photographs at events. And he just happened to catch this this play out like moment by moment and he got his camera out. I don't, I still don't know what he looks like or know where he was. And he took moment by moment pictures of like me like kicking this guy, this guy falling, <laughs> me with him in a headlock, like Brian with his fist, like on his, this guy's chest, like moment by moment. And about a week and a half later, at some point in there, he'd sold it to all these big news stations, the story. And so unbeknownst to me, he makes big money selling it to these news stations. All of a sudden it goes viral. And the headline, <laughs> God, the headline that I forever will be haunted by was medieval wench tackles sword thief. <laughs> My claim to fame. I will forever be a wench. I wasn't hey. even dressed like a wench. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, like, like Andy dance with that moment for a minute, right? Like that is, <laughs> that is brave creative leadership in a nutshell. It's, there's a problem you know, I'm going to go solve it. Right. And, and, and the bravery, I don't know that I would have had the guts to, to, to <laughs> chase after a guy. I certainly you wouldn't would have been have. fit enough to run uphill after him. Um, but I mean, that's, that's part of the one V one culture that we've got the warrior mentality, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, I was just, as she was saying, medieval wench, you know, I can think of many <laughs> instances when she was younger, like teenage wench causes problems <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, in the family, you know, in, in a million different ways, you know. So. I don't know how I feel about you calling me a wench, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> kind of uncomfortable over here. <laughs> the truth hurts sometimes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I got a text from my family in England later that week when it went viral, and they, it was a picture of, on the front page of The Guardian in, in the UK, oh. a picture of me in, with this guy in a headlock with the title, and they go, are you the medieval wench? Is this you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, damn it. <laughs> damn it. That is good stuff. Well, um, all right, let's dig into the soccer piece a little bit here. Yeah. Andy, so to give you guys just like the full background, I, I'm sure there are times... In fact, I know there are because we're going to talk about the U.S. Women's National Team and Anson Dorrance here in a moment. Um, but largely your youth coaching club experience 
for a long period of time was boys only my team and along with six other teams. Um, and, and I remember when I first started coaching back with the club in like 2007, 2008, 2009, you talking about the difference in coaching girls compared to coaching boys. And like, again, you know, for the audience, like Andy and I see coaching through the same lens. My only experience ever with the exception of the four years away from college away at college was playing for Andy. And so brave creative leadership, taking players on, you know, going for it, dribbling, um, being creative in combination to break down defenses. That was the only way I saw it. And so from a legends perspective, from a brave creative leadership perspective, from a no fear of failure perspective, you specifically described coaching girls being different than coaching from boys. Andrew, are you following what I'm saying here? Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, What do you mean by that? Well, you know, there's, there's a thousand reasons why coaching girls is different from coaching boys, but and I'd like to delve into my background because uh, I started coaching age 16 in Oxford, England. And For the uh, Quarry Rovers. Quarry Rovers and the chairman of the club. You know, uh, I was playing with, with uh, Oxford City at the time. I was getting paid to play as a 16-year-old. And he said, look, you know, you're getting your name in the paper, you know, and you would be a bit of a hero to these, you know, seven and eight-year-old kids. Would you come along and coach? So I started coaching boys, you know, that were seven and eight years old. And from that point in time, when I was 16 until I was 29 and I coached for 10 years voluntarily in, in Britain and moved to the States when I was 26, 27 and, uh, and, and rose quickly through the ranks and I was on the national coaching uh, staff at the, uh, the camp in Marquette, Michigan that Anson Dorrance headed up. Hank Long was the under-19 national team coach. Anson was the, you know, the adult national team coach at the time. And there were four of us regional coaches that had brought you know, the best players out of the various regions, four regions around the States. And I sat down to watch this game with region four against region, let's see, one, region two. Uh, That's and, our region. No, region three, sorry. And, uh, and, and the, uh, the big matchup in that, in that game, according to Anson, was the centre-back, Brandy Barnes, who played for the Dallas Sting Soccer Club, and uh, the centre-striker, Brandy Chastain, who was the, the girl that uh, wrote the book, It's Not About the Bra, and you know, famously scored the winning penalty kick in the 1999 World Cup final against China. And, uh, and Anson said, Andy said, watch this. He said, you're not going to believe your eyes. He said, you want to see anything like this? Because no matchup of 19-year-olds in this world is this competitive, you know. And I sat fascinated as these two female warriors kicked lumps out of each other all game long. And, you know, along with a lot of skill, you know, but they competed airily. They were both really fantastic in the air. On the floor, Brandy Chastain was really quality and, you know, had a, had a wicked shot. And, but Brandy Barnes was an incredible gladiator athlete. You know, and you know, she gave Brandy Chastain everything that, that, that she could handle. And at the end of the game, I was gobsmacked, which is English for, you know, just wide-mouthed, you know, and I couldn't believe what I'd seen, you know. And, you know, and, and I thanked Anson for, you know, pointing that out to me and having me watch that and give me the opportunity because at that point in time, even though I was coaching the regional under-19 girls team for the Midwest, I just didn't have that vision because I'd never seen girls be warriors like that so you know that was an absolute eye-opener yeah at that point in time and uh and and that's you know what i've been you know dealing with ever since is you know a, a late start if you can call the 20s the late 20s a late start into recognizing the power that you know that women have 
you know, which is every bit as, as you know, as, as powerful as what men have, you know, to do wonderful things with a soccer ball and, you know, and to, to be brave, creative leaders, you know, w- when they're on the field. So you set out, I assume Brittany was your first Legends girls team that you coached, Brittany's team. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So you started out a Legends, a girls side to the Legends club when in 1995, 96, I'm guessing is probably when that started. Um, and you were going to take the same approach to teaching her team that you that you took to my team, right? You know, very much centered around deceptive dribbling and goal scoring. What did you find in in the, those first teams that you coached on the girls' side that differed in terms of what you experienced with our teams on the boys' side? Well, you know, girls are very different. Yeah, you know? and so uh, you know, I. I found that, uh, for example, you know, at the start of practice, you know, I'd, I would turn up to practice with, you know, Britain's team and getting them out of their social mode was really difficult because, you know, the first five, ten minutes, they would all gather together and, you know, they would um, affirm each other. You know, they would talk and they would, you know, pass the time of day about what's going on in their lives. And there was this, you know, social gathering where they just wanted to connect. You know, and on my boys' team, I'd turn up, and if any of the boys were there before I was, you know, they were already out there shooting on each other and, you yeah. know, and playing one-on-ones or two-on-twos or, you know, but they, they weren't waiting around and, and socially connecting. They were already out there, you know, battling and fighting and, and, you know, being warriors, you know, kind of like, you know, male dogs and just playing like puppies and wrestling and fighting. And girls just didn't do that. You know, I had to get them going. The boys, they got themselves going. But did did you find that when you told the girls, "Hey, I want you to do a Maradona in your own penalty box and just go for it, go for it, go for it," were they eager to to take on that that type of play, or was it different? Well, you know, this is kind of interesting because uh, you know, at one point in time, I took over a team that was my second daughter's age, Ashley's age, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember that um, that that they had earned their way into the Premier Division outdoors uh, under the previous coach, Abdullah Parker, who still coaches with our club to this day. And, uh, you know, Abdullah uh, had gotten them to a point where they were winning, but I would say more by playing an intelligent positional game, you know, and I took them over and I said, okay, forget everything that Abdullah said, basically, because we're going to go out there and we're going to try and move everywhere, you know, and so when you get the ball on your own goal line, I want to see you try Maradona turn, you know, and... Um, it just happened to be that that first game we were playing against my, my good old friend, who um, Hugh Williams, who last year was coaching the professional women's team in town, and he had the best team in, in probably the Midwest at that age. And so, you know, I said to the girls, you know, no matter where you are, do a move. <laughs> and we lost 26 to zero. And Hugh called the dogs off. Hugh, you know, when they got up by about 10, you know, he asked his players to do, you know, 20 passes and a backflip before they could score, you know, and, and they still beat 16 us. more. <laughs> <laughs> because, my, you know, my girls were trying Maradona turns and I'd only just shown them how to do it and they were horrible at them, you know, literally in their own penalty area and every time that, you know, they tried one, they'd lose the ball and what's a girl going to do when you're, you know, you're virtually on the goal line and the goal's beckoning, you know, you mm-hmm. can't turn around and play it towards your own goal. Yeah, it's tough to do a backflip there too. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those days. Those were hard. Yeah. And, and, but this is one of the things that most people, you know, that most coaches are conditioned not to really get is, you know, you have to go through immense failure to get to immense success. 
And, and so, you know, I asked my girls to do the most difficult things with the ball in the most horrible areas of the field, mm -hmm. you know, and fail and fail and fail. And I took it upon myself to literally resell the parents after every game that they were doing it, that the sun will come up tomorrow. And we still lost a lot of parents. And yes, and we had wastage. We had people that were saying, this guy's crazy. Yeah, you know, or we, parents that wanted to win so bad they couldn't stomach that. Well, they couldn't stand the humi humiliation of being around the water cooler on Monday morning. Yeah. You know, with the other parents of successful teams that had won. Yeah. And, you know, people saying, how did your team do at the weekend? Well, you know, um, you know, actually, we had <laughs> a lovely team brunch on 16 Sunday. 16 back for us. <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, how do you change the course of a conversation when your team lost 26 to zero? I think it takes a huge leap of faith from the players and the parents to, to do this, especially when you start out as like not great athletes to begin with, sure. which my team, Ashley's team, like we were a group of a lot of rejects, honestly. Yeah. We didn't know how to play soccer. We weren't great athletes. So we were getting our butt kicked for a good couple years, I remember. And I think so. I got a story for you, Britt, and hold on to your thought and your question. But um, <laughs> before I was busy coaching seven teams, eight mm -hmm. teams at the time, and I didn't have the time to coach your team uh, when you were, I'd say, about 10, 11, 12 years of age. And so uh, I, I asked Alistair Jones if he would coach the way that you remember when I was playing for him. I was trying to get you know, you know. Uh, across the whole club yeah and Alistair coached for a different club Avellino mm -hmm. and uh, and Alistair agreed to coach to my methodology and so I agreed to you know have him you know have you play for him at the time with your permission mm -hmm. and uh, and so you went and played for Alistair and after about a couple of months you know this this was at the start of a full season after a couple of months Alistair who was working for me at the time came to me and said Andy, I've got to go back to coaching to win. Yeah. And I said, why, Alistair? Well, I've got parents that are telling me they're going to leave, and yes, I do. Yeah. You know, and so Alistair went back to coaching to win, and I pulled you off of the team. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. You know, because I knew that, you know, you would be used mm -hmm. instead of developed to be a great individual player and to be a brave creative leader. Yeah. You know, and so Alistair went his merry way, kept the team together, and they started winning again, you know, and they'd been absolutely getting shellacked you know, the first couple of months of going with trying to move every time they got the ball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I, and perhaps this is part of the reason why I started to change. It was, I founded my experience coaching boys and girls. Sometimes it's a little bit more of an uphill battle. And I say battle intentionally from a coaching perspective to get the girls and their parents to, to fully embrace this ragged edge, hot dog with a ball at their feet yeah. attitude to teaching the game. And I think it's it's in large part because we as a society have conditioned um, and we're breaking out of it. And we'll get into that, I think, in a moment. But like conditioned historically girls to go along to get along. We're going to work together. No, I don't want to step out and do something. I don't want you to think that I'm better than you. Yep. Right. We're the same. Right. Yeah. And, and Teamwork and so, makes a dream work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas boys, it's like, oh, wait, you've got a challenge for me. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a go at that. And, and, and again, society historically has, has, has created that culture within us. I'm proud to say that I think it's different now in 2021, almost 2022 compared to what it was like in 1995 and mm -hmm. 1996. Um, but, but that is an uphill battle that I have to be aware of and, and cons consistently when I'm coaching the girls team that I coach, encouraging them to be willing to do that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And it's different. Well, and it's hard to see your babies lose, Sure, you know, like, and to see them frustrated and to see them not knowing how to take that time and time again. I mean, that's a huge, even me who 
loves this theory, loves this philosophy. If I had to watch my daughter go through it, would struggle yeah, yeah. with the pain of seeing her having to deal with that much rejection, even if I knew it was going to pay off in the long run for, you know, what, one, two years. That's a long time. Sure, sure, sure. Well, um, and that's part of the problem because you know, moms circle the wagons around their daughters we a do. lot more than around sons. We and feel their pain. Yeah, and, and, and so, you know, as a society, we're actually um, trying to, and they call it helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, we hover over our kids and we try and protect our kids. And I think that happens more to girls than it does to boys. Mm -hmm. And helicopter parenting actually means you're not allowed to take a really big risk and fail. Yeah. Sure. You know, so you're not really allowed to stretch and grow mm -hmm to the degree you need to grow because you know any failure is regarded as negative where you know there's positive upward failure if you like where it's it's a positive and you have to go to the ragged edge and you have to fail in order to learn how to adjust something and take it to another level and eventually become a true brave creative leader mm -hmm. that can take on any of life's reasonable challenges sure. you know? we're sure. not talking about throwing yourself off a cliff without a parachute here we're talking about obviously some you know taking on intelligent challenges yeah. you know but the willingness of people to get out of their box and take on risky you know opportunities challenges you know whether that's in a job environment or a sports environment any type of an environment in life um, is usually the number one deciding factor as to whether somebody's going to be successful mm -hmm. yeah. you know we talk about the intersection of culture and how culture impacts environment and, and, and development from a soccer perspective oftentimes. Like it's kind of like a trademark of, the, of, of our show, I think. And, um, and American culture, I think, embraced women's sports to an earlier degree, right, which allowed U.S. US women's soccer specifically to achieve more quickly than than other countries with maybe better soccer pedigrees, and a lot of it, I think, is cultural in nature. Some of it's you know Title IX and, and and so on and so forth. But there's other podcasts that cover that in greater depth than we will. Um, Philippe, you, you you're from Brazil, right? We talk about Brazil often. Brazilian women's soccer is 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 in an okay place, but not nearly what it could be. And why would you say that is the case? Well, I think um, obviously cultural. Um, I think Brazil has been so successful uh, in the men's game, and that started in you know early fifties. And by that time, at that time, women's soccer wasn't even allowed. There was a law against it. So, nineteen forty, a law that prohibited women from playing soccer. Correct. So there were like lo uh, there was a law that. Uh, our president, who was like uh, kind of a fascist, yeah. uh, if you will, um, and he was he reigned from 1930 to 90, 1945, uh, and in 1941 he came up with this law that kind of uh, split like w sports that should be played by men and sports that should be played by by women, um, and and yeah. Uh, the women's were not allowed to play soccer because uh, it was, quote, too violent and could uh, jeopardize their ability of having kids. So women should not do activities that were um, that hard on the body. Uh, so I think because of that, on that period, Brazil was having success in the men and women didn't was weren't even allowed to play soccer. I guess like the country kind of identified soccer as a men's sport and. Even when in 1979, by the time Brazil already has three World Cups, you know, and 
has been in the world scene for soccer on the men's side uh, for a while. By that time, there wasn't even much interest for girls to play soccer or for parents to put their girls to play soccer. Girls, you know, would play volleyball, do ballet, gymnastics, swimming, and stuff like that. But they never crossed their mind to play soccer. And so there's a giant uphill battle for Exactly. And personally, I think something that motivates a kid to play sports it's having an idol. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up watching Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Romario, these guys, and they made me love soccer. And we didn't have that um, for, for, for women's because it wasn't even allowed. Then Marta came along, and now she became an ambassador for soccer in Brazil, and the sport is growing. There is a professional league. Nowadays, almost every single big club in Brazil uh, has a um, youth development academy for the girls and a professional women's team. And, you know, it's growing, but again, we're playing catch-up. Yeah. We're f- way behind, and obviously there's not much money into the sport um, because, you know, there's not a, a high interest from from people to watch it, but it's starting. It's 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 getting there. You know, Brazil already been has been in uh, Olympic final and two uh, World Cup finals. Unfortunately, didn't didn't win those. But you know, and with time, I think we'll we'll catch up because now there's the interest of go- girls to play soccer and they are in a soccer hotbed. So as long as the country keeps moving in that direction, I don't see a reason why we won't you know, catch up with, with the big dogs. And let's transition to Andy. Like you were in Iceland a few years back. We, you and I both went to the 2019 women's world cup in France. And both of us had airfare that connected through Iceland. <laughs> I think on the way to France, you stopped off in Iceland for a few days. And yeah. for me on the way home from France, I stopped off in Iceland for a few days. And while in Iceland, you met with uh, a club there, right. And discussed specifically the evolution of the women's game. Yeah, I, I met with a guy called Halle Hrodmarsson, and I probably butchered no, his name. No, I think name. you nailed it. He, nailed it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we yeah. have an Iceland listener. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and uh, it, it, it was really uh, interesting meeting with Halle because uh, and, and, you know, these are the things that, uh, that, that he opened my eyes to when we sat down and, and we met. And he showed me around his, his club. In, and it's the, the, the biggest one in the center of Reykjavik. Okay. And the closest to the downtown cathedral and yeah. the city center. And, and uh, um, you know, I said, well, you know, why has Iceland with 330,000 people had so much success, both on the men's and the women's game. And he addressed the women's game specifically. And he said, he said Andy, he said, what, what you've got to realize is the inclusivity we have as an island. You know, we, we can't let even one kid get away from us. So we literally include every single kid in everything that we're doing. And the whole program in our club is designed to, you know, suck in everybody, even the kid that can't walk and chew gum you know, is, is brought in and treated like, you know, a, a mini god within our program and treated really well. And he said, you know, we have almost no focus on winning. You know, that's, you know, that's something we don't look at is we just play games. And, you know, and, you know, of course the kids keep score 
you know, because they're competitive, just naturally. He said, but, you know, we as a club, we don't focus on winning. You know, if you're losing, that's not highlighted. You don't go away feeling embarrassed because you lost. And, you know, really you don't go away feeling that celebrated because you won. You know, it's very much about the individual and maintaining their self-concept, irrespectful of the outcome of practices and games. And, uh, you know, and I thought that was really, really interesting. The other thing he said is that it, it, groups are really integrated. He said, what we do is we create groups of equal players irrespective of sex. So, you know, if you're good enough, you're in a group. You know, whether you're male or female, you're good enough. You know, and so everybody is, is, um, is, is divided up according to their ability, you know, and, you know, all of the things that, that determine ability, maturity and skill and, and things of that nature. And uh, he said that's a, that's a huge part. You know, good players train up. And, uh, and, and, you know, and the other thing he said is we, we do everything on small fields. He said, you know, we, we don't have a, a plethora of outdoor facilities, and most of the year it's awful outdoors. So he said, what we do is we have these big field houses, and to get everybody accommodated every night for hours on end, yeah, we run multiple small-sided games where there's a much greater intensity of numbers on each piece of real estate, you know, and it's so that everybody can play at the same time. And, and that was one of the interesting things is that uh, I, I was um, given a tour of the facility and there were practices going on outdoors on the AstroTurf field because they've got these heated AstroTurf fields all around the island so that they're never really impacted by snow and they can get outdoors on a year-round basis these days outdoors. Um, but around this AstroTurf field, there were 22 goals around the field. I've never seen so many goals on a field, you know, and they had something going on and it was all small-sided games, but they had all different sizes of goals for all different ages of players and levels of maturity, you know, and they could literally put, um, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten fields on a regulation field with goals that were suited to a whole group of under sixes or a whole group of under tens or a whole group of adults, mm. you know. And, uh, and so, you know, their, their um, outdoor provision was something I hadn't seen with the outdoor field, but indoors it was the same way. You'd go indoors into the field houses and there were goals backed up against the walls, you know, even though there were 12 goals on the field, there were all sorts of goals around the outside backed up against the walls. And you could see that they'd invested a ton of money, not just in the field houses, which must have cost millions. It was all government built. But they'd also invested in the infrastructure to play small-sided games. The other thing they don't do, and that's, um, this is kind of interesting, because they, they don't recruit from other clubs. You know, and Reykjavik being a fairly small city, and Iceland only having 330,000 people, nobody ventures into anybody's territory to recruit the better players from other clubs. There's an honor system which nobody breaches apparently because um, they realize that if they do that, then the leagues are gonna become instantly uncompetitive and they'll have one team that's really good with nobody to play against. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so they've got this honor system where you just have the people from the, the, the surrounding areas. So it's the shortest distance to get from your home to the practice field less time is wasted and nobody you know gets players from other clubs now when they get to the adult level the professional level that's a different story you know they, in fact icelandic teams recruit people from all over the world mm -hmm. and what i found interesting as well is you know Halley said 
all the good players leave us when they're like 15, 16, 17. We've developed them with this constant small-sided game mentality, you know, from when they were two, three or four. They leave us to go to Europe to play in, you know, academies, youth programs around Europe. They said all the better players, you know, don't achieve their greatness by staying on the island because they don't have yeah. the quality of competition on the island. So, you know, there's this exodus that, you know, goes with being an Icelander and wanting to play professional soccer. You know, you know, they're one of their best players the last few decades is Gilfie Sigurdsson, you know, and he left as an, you know, as a mid teenager, you know, to join the professional tour, if you like, around around Europe. You said something that I want to explore a little bit. And I want to explore it with Brittany. Um, you said that that in Iceland, right? There's that the don't they don't allow gender to divide divide quality, right? And so girls, if they're good enough, play with boys. Boys, if they're good enough, they play with girls. Like they're all integrated together based on level. Um, and Brittany, if I remember right, you finished your high school career because you grew up in rural Kansas, just mm -hmm. outside of Kansas City, your high school did not have a girls' soccer team. We and did so, not. so you played boys' soccer. We actually didn't have a soccer team, period. Oh, really? Okay. I was on the inaugural soccer team. The at first our year. High school. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so, and you were the only girl? I was, no, there was another girl. There too. was another girl as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I so, I was the only starting girl in varsity. I would love to hear about one, the experience of just playing with boys, but two, about brave creative leadership and what, what the club did for you to give you the confidence, presumably, to play at that level and, 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 and to deal with all the challenges that would have come from playing <laughs> boys soccer in rural Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't unfamiliar with playing with the boys because growing up, I always played on my dad's team that he coached in the Legends, which is a girls team. But I also played on his boys team because okay. he also coached a subsequent boys team. Um, and he would always come have me come out. It was like a B team, a B boys team premiere. Yeah. Um, but he would come out, have me come out and do practices with them and play with them. And I was never the best player on that team ever. But I loved practicing. I loved playing with them. Um, and I held my own, I would, I think it's fair to say. Um, and in that environment, I learned how to play with the boys. And I learned actually a lot because they were very physical and it demanded me being that physical as well, more so than the girls, I feel like. And they, once they found out that I could hold my own with them, I felt like they treated me like an equal and it made me raise my game to another level and become faster and more physical. Um, and that was a hard decision actually to play on my high school team when we had our inaugural team happen that year um, because I had to give up my premier team to play with them. Oh, because you couldn't play high school and club at the same, same time. Yeah. Same season, yeah. yeah. So it was a it was a hard decision, but I think it was too. And if tempting. I remember rightly, you gave up state champion team. I did. Yeah. Yeah, you were playing on the state champion you know, for a number of years in a row team with Dougie. Yeah, with Doug yeah. McLaggan. Which that's another story why I gave that up because that wasn't a legends team I was playing on at the time. But um, uh, yeah, I gave up, I made that decision to play because it was too tempting as a high schooler to not play on the inaugural team of my high school. Sure, sure, um, sure. But it was a whole other experience because these were players who didn't, most of the time, didn't play premier on any team. They just liked soccer. They'd played in rec leagues in rural Kansas growing up, um, the boys. So my level of expertise when it came to playing soccer was so much higher, so much higher than any of these players. So I walked in from day one and was one of the best players on that team, which I think also was part of the allure, was coming sure, in yeah, and being the course, star yeah, as a woman. Yeah, you know, course, I thought yeah. that was really cool but as a high schooler. I want to point something out, though, because you were probably the slowest player. I was, yeah. Yeah, because these were, these were you know, young men. Yeah. And, you know, genetically men are faster than women. Oh, yeah. These were, these were pretty fast kids. Yeah. 
you know, so you were more skillful, mm -hmm. but definitely not as athletic. Not yeah, close. but it was hard because it was unlike any soccer I'd played. Like it was so, so unorganized. Like there was no strategy. Like these coaches didn't know much about soccer. They just yeah. volunteered to just be roll out the soccer. balls. Yeah. So it was so different than anything I'd ever done before. And it came with its own challenges because even though I had so much more expertise, like I was coming into rural Kansas, playing other rural Kansas teams and these on the other teams when we would play, I feel like the parents on my team really got behind me, uh, of even of the other boys, and they supported me because I was on their team and I was doing good things for their team. Um, but the other teams, those parents hated me more than I felt any kind of hatred in my life, I felt like, in playing these teams. Because of the drag Maradona? Yeah, I think the drag Maradona. And I was, I think the issue was I was embarrassing their boys. Sure. And I was going out there as a small, you know, five foot two woman, and I was totally embarrassing them and the, I, you know I do the drag Maradona mostly to them and they would bite hook line and sinker more than anyone's ever bit in my life and they would fall over on their faces and those parents hated that yeah so it was it was interesting for sure and and would you say that I mean of course all of our backgrounds right growing up right mm -hmm. impact the future us um, uh, to varying degrees but would you say just the experience of that season playing with the boys like what kind of impact did that have for your future in terms of just the tenacity that it took to to chase down a guy up a hill you know after after the sortie <laughs> stole or you know or build you know some of the businesses that you've built right yeah. like that had to play a role in that that development well so it's funny because like I feel like if I hadn't had the legends background growing up going into that situation playing high school with those boys and all that hatred I felt I would have like recoiled I would have like not been like no thank you like I'm getting screamed at from grown men and grown women sure like horrible names and they're getting pissed at the referees because I'm beating their children. But the thing with me was at that point I'd played for the legends for so long that I relished that. Like sure. I loved every second. You liked being the villain. Yeah. I yeah. liked, I liked being so good that I was pissing off these parents. Like I wanted to piss them off more because that meant I was doing something right. Yeah. Like I was good enough to show up these, these boys. And that to me was something I think I celebrated instead of being scared of. Yeah. Um, because growing up with the legends, like I had failed so much for so many years originally, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, doing ma drag Maradona's or doing step overs in my own penalty box and losing the ball and being scored on like, you know, 50 goals to zero at the end of the game that, that didn't scare me like losing or being yelled at didn't scare me because I'd experienced that so much that it meant I was growing. Can I, can I step in here? Because this is time for the audience to feel very sorry for me because I had to put up with this at home 24-7. <laughs> you created a monster. <laughs> you know, the fighting was constant, you know, because, you know. Because uh, it's not just Brittany. There's four other daughters. Yeah. <laughs> there, were, there were five daughters and, you know, they were fighting between themselves, fighting with mum, fighting with me, you know, and, you know, they're so... You know, that was the story of my life. It was yeah. one fight from start to finish. You know, I used to go to work to go coach boys, you know, to get out of the fight. Funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's where the creative, elusive nature of Andy just, you know, slipping and sliding through the uh, yeah. through, through the, the chaos to, to make things happen. Well, OK, so we're talking about playing with boys and that being kind of paramount to maybe your development, not just from a soccer specific, actually very specifically not from a soccer specific, yeah. just from a life uh, um, uh, uh, perspective. Philippe, Marta, right? Like, I don't know. I haven't read up nearly as much about her. Mar Marta spent quite a bit of time playing with the boys. I think Marta is the best female soccer player of all time. Oh, By far. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's why she's on the wall behind us if you're watching this on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, she is 
phenomenal, not just from a creativity perspective, but from an attitude and a fight and a, and a, and a tenacity perspective. Mm-hmm. What, what, what from her background can we, we learn from? So as Brittany was describing her experience playing with boys in high school and how much um, she got, you know, yelled at, made fun at, and, you know, and had to bear with all that. And she used that as motivation. That's pretty much Martha's testimony. So she's from uh, the northeast of Brazil, the p- poorest area. Recife? No, Alagoas okay. is the name of the state. Uh, and so she's already from a state that from itself is already one of the poorest in the poorest region of Brazil. And she's from a really tiny town, like rural countryside um, of that state. Um, so people from that area, they have a very... Um, a negative mentality towards women, towards, you know... Uh, the opposite the of progressive. <laughs> Co- correct. Yeah. Uh, sounds a lot like rural Kansas. It does. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I would say it's Very rural much. Kansas in steroids. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, where, I mean, she, she, came, she came up with a family of um, five kids, uh, single mom, didn't have a dad, and mom working 24-7, you know, not having money for anything very poor they lived in a like hundreds not even a hundred square foot uh like room just six of them and all she she did her whole childhood was go to the streets play soccer with the boys and work uh, as a kid and just selling stuff and you know trying to to do anything uh, to help out at home and you know, her brother says, you know, it was tough for him because everybody would make fun of him because his <laughs> sister was, was playing soccer. Was. <laughs> no, because his sister was playing soccer and soccer was for boys, yeah. you know. Yeah. So she was always abused by that. Um, that was one coach that took her on the local team um, and she was playing on a, a, f- a futsal league and they, after uh, two, three seasons... They changed the name of the league to Boys League, oh. so she couldn't play wow. anymore. And she always tells how all these things serves to her as motivation. Every time she got uh, denied something for being a girl, playing with the boys, and all that abuse, all she could think of is like, "I'm gonna prove these people wrong, yeah. and I'm gonna do it because I'm so good at it." And she could tell every time she played with boys. Even though she was physically not as fast and strong, she was technical, she was skillful, she was creative, and she had that intensity and that you know, passion that would make her be a warrior, and that was her differential, and she just used that as motivation. And mm. once she had the opportunity, um, uh, one of the coaches gave her some money to go to Rio, um, and that's when she... Uh, started training with uh, Vasco uh, youth team, um, and just first day she already killed it at the tryout, made the team, and from that on, you know, she went to Europe and national team, and you know the ha- rest of history. But it's f- it's interesting to hear her side of the story, mentioning how much she was abused, how much she suffered. Prejudiced. I didn't know that about her. This is so cool to hear. And she used that as the biggest motivation. That she was like, I'm going to win in life 
and it's going to be through soccer because I want to prove all these people wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think the Legends Club um, gives that without th these kids having the need to succeed, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, because it was her way out of poverty to save the family. So it's a different kind of motivation. But at the Legends Club, we teach the kids that, you know, if they don't strive to be a brave, creative leader, you know, they're just going to blend in. Mm -hmm. And that's not cool. Yeah. 